only source of true delight whom I unseen adore unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more oh that I might love thee more you're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Our scripture reading this morning is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, page 965 in the Blue P Bibles in front of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts." Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. O gracious Lord, we praise your name that In your kind providence, we live in this age of the Spirit. We praise your name that, Lord, we can look back upon the precious work of Jesus Christ. We praise your name that we can celebrate the coming of God to earth in the person of Christ and celebrate his glorious life, the love that he revealed the work by dying on the cross for us and being raised for us, being exalted to the right hand of God, that we live in this glorious age in which nothing is the same anymore. The old age from that point on is passing away. It's as good as gone in your economy. And the new age is here. And all things have become new. Lord, we thank you that we are part of this glorious kingdom, this 
new age and you've delivered us from that age. We thank you that we taste of heavenly powers, that all the blessings in the heavenlies are ours in Christ Jesus. We honor you and praise you, Lord, that we are joined, united to Christ, that his righteousness is ours, that he shares with us his holiness, and that, Lord, he one day will transform our bodies into conformity with his own. Oh, Lord, what you have done to become a human being, to call us to yourself and to join us to you forever that we might enjoy your glory. Lord, we pray now, bless us as we seek to open up your word. Bless us that we will grow in our understanding of our glorious privileges in Christ. Bless us that we will understand how obedience is impossible, will never even begin apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Bless us, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Steve is bringing up something that I need to begin with. It's something very important for every minister. It's a Calvin and Hobbes uh, comic uh, book. (laughs) Why I oughta. Um, I wanted to begin with a couple of things from Calvin because we're going to talk about obedience this morning and we're going to talk about motive and how we really become obedient to God and how poorly the law functions in making us obedient. Okay, so here's Calvin and as you know, the little kid really changes or tries to change as it gets close to Christmas because he's got to at least be good those last couple of weeks in order to get gifts. So uh, unknown to him, his pet tiger who, you know, comes alive when they're alone, tells him he has a, a letter from the North Pole. Of course, Hobbes has written it, but he says, read it, read it. Dear Calvin, you rotten little... Oh, no! Santa called me rotten. I'm doomed. And then Hobbes says, keep reading. Uh, I made a list. And anyway, he goes on about this. Well, that shows how, how frightened he is, how worked up he is, that Hobbes can pull the wool over his eyes by just sending him a letter from Santa. Okay. Now, that was one long one I won't read. But here, therefore, in that context of the fear of doing something wrong, he says to Hobbes, they get in little tussles all the time. He says, boy, if it wasn't so close to Christmas, I'd pound you good. Hobbes, yeah, I'd like to see you try. Oh, no, you don't. You're not tempting me. I want every item on my Christmas list, so I'm being good, no matter what the provocation. Here comes Susie Durkins. Really quick, help me find a pine cone I can throw at. No, I'm being good, 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 he says, with that face. (laughs) And Hobbes says, you'll never make it till Christmas. Give up now and enjoy yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so 
there's uh, Calvin trying to be good. Now, that would be, uh, in some sense, the dealing with the sin of commission, as we say. Here's a sin of omission, okay, where you're doing the right thing or trying to do the right thing, but you don't quite have it together. <clears throat> so he, he, he comes in his mother's bedroom, mother and dad's bedroom. He's got a card in his hand. Hey, Mom, wake up. I made you a Mother's Day card. Why, how sweet of you. I did it all by myself. Go ahead and read it. So she's reading the card. I was going to buy a card with hearts of pink and red, but then I thought I'd rather spend the money on me instead. <clears throat> it's awfully hard to buy things when one's allowance is so small. Calvin goes, <clears throat> So I guess you're pretty lucky I got you anything at all. <clears throat> and then as she's reading, Calvin is, has his arm on her legs, you know, her knees are up. He's got his arms just smiling, thinking this is just perfect. As he ends his card this way, Happy Mother's Day to you. There I said it. Now I'm done. So how about getting out of bed and cooking breakfast for your son? <laughs> she looks at him with her eyes half closed. I'm deeply moved. And he says, did you notice the part about my allowance? That's it right there. So, um, now, this illustrates the huge problem we all have with obedience. It's not so much the rules. It's not so much the law itself. And we'll get to that where Paul calls the law holy and spiritual and good. But it's me. It's the brick wall of self that slams against the law, the rule, love, actually. It's myself coming against the demand, the command to love. It just withers me. It just wipes me out. Because I'm committed to self. I honor self. I protect self. I meet the felt needs of self. I serve self and nurture self. I make excuses for self. I defend self. I promote self. So the problem is not the rule. The problem, of course, is me. And here's Calvin. Even in order to get gifts from Santa, he can't change who he really is, can he? He can't change what he really wants. Even though the prize of endless gifts from Santa is sitting in front of him, it doesn't change him. It's an external, even a promise, even the hope of it can't change himself. And then it's like bringing a cat to bath. That's like bringing self to love. You ever tried to do that? I have. Got half killed, you know, as a kid. I wonder what it'd be like. And that is a great picture of bringing self to love. And remember, the law is summarized, love God, love others. That's all it is. That's the essence of it. We think of all the many different rules and commands, but the essence of it is love. We can't stand it because we're committed to self. And so even on Mother's Day when he's outwardly doing the right thing and 
outwardly he's made a card himself and he does it first thing in the morning and then you realize in the end of it, none of it was about his mother. It was all about himself. We attended uh, the excellent counseling uh, seminar that uh, Jeremy Lelick and his group put on a few weeks ago and Paul Tripp talked about how most marriages, most every marriage begins by two people finding somebody, each of whom thinks the other will do for me what I need. And then he says they wake up either the next day, and he's had some call the next day. He had one girl call the next morning saying, I want out. You know. He said, that's good. She found out early. You know. Not that she should get out, but she found out early, oh, he's not going to do everything for me that I intended for him to do. He's not going to obey my needs, so to speak. And he said, then you begin to learn, wait a minute, I've got to love this person. I really have to love this person. He said, so many people don't get married because of love. They get married because they're manipulating each other. Well... It's just the way self does. And that helps us understand, begin to understand something of what Paul says here in this incredible, devastating critique of the law. Uh, This is so unusual because he calls it in verse 7 a ministry of death, and then he calls it later in verse 9 a ministry of condemnation. Now, this is the Ten Commandments. These are the commandments that we want posted in public school, right? These are the commandments that, because we're not following them, our society is going by the wayside. These are the Ten Commandments that we want to underscore or in the hall of the Supreme Court. These are the Ten Commandments. Our Western culture, isn't it founded on the Ten Commandments? And here Paul says, it's a ministry of death and condemnation. Now, that's why a lot of Jewish writers uh, have taken issue with Paul. Because in the Jewish economy, the law was intended to be a part of our salvation. And it's, it gives life. And yet here Paul comes in and says, it's a ministry of death and condemnation. So, what, what does he mean here? And it's all the more amazing because Paul is a Pharisee. Pharisee means fanatic about the law, absolutely fanatic, a zealot believing that if he and others with him, if he can get them to all obey God zealously enough about the law, then they could bring in the kingdom. Messiah would come. That's what he thought at one point. I mean, he was fanatic, uh, like Dr. Hugh Francis, a friend of mine back in Memphis, he had, he's a UT fan, you know, there it's Tennessee, but he's a UT fan. He had a, a room that was orange, under lock and key. And, and you walked in there, there were hundreds, thousands of objects, all were orange, okay? I mean, from lamps to toenail clippers to, you know, cards to clothes, everything. It's just all orange. And he was absolutely committed, of course, absolutely fanatical. Well, paint Paul's whole life orange for the law, right? And now 
He's saying it's a ministry of death and condemnation. Well, let's try to unpack a little bit what Paul could have meant by saying that. And I'd like to underscore several things. The law exposes sin. The law, and this is perhaps the most surprising, increases sin. The law increases sin. The law condemns us in our sin. And then we'll see a bit the law is powerless before sin. Powerless before sin. And I know that's four points and you're thinking, he'll never do it. Um, We may not reach them all. We'll see. Now, you'll notice, and I just want to mention these things before we leave 2 Corinthians 3 because I want to go to Romans to talk about a lot of this. But you'll notice the contrast that he has in verse 3. He says, and this is back page 965 if you want to use the Bible in the pew or 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3. He's contrasting a letter written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. And you would expect him to say not with papyrus or some paper thing because he's just used ink. But he wants to use the contrast of the stone of the Ten Commandments and probably the stone of Ezekiel 36 where he says, I'm going to take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So both of those things are probably swirling in his his head right here to make that contrast. That's why he switches from ink to stone here. But you get the basic idea. It's not... The letter, it's not the stone, it's the spirit of the living God that is acting in this way. So he says in this new covenant, there is a ministry of the heart that was not present, or at least a ministry of the heart that was not so prevalent and intense and all-encompassing as is now. And so he's able to contrast and say, as opposed to the stones, now the spirit. And later in verse 6, notice he's made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So there's something about this emphasis on the letter, on the stone, almost as though it's being isolated and the law itself separated from other aspects is being focused on. And it's, it's true nature as law brought out at this point. But whatever it is he's talking about, it kills. It kills. And it's striking because so many times the law is spoken of as that which gives life. And if you obey the law in the Old Testament, it brings life. Take the first psalm. He who meditates in the law day and night will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Well... <laughs> How can, how can you say that and then say this? I don't know. I said, no. Just... All right, let's back up then to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, page 943, if you're unfamiliar. And don't, don't worry if you don't know where these letters are. Just it helps to look at the text itself. Because what we're about here is to try to 
say what what we believe the Word of God has to say, not what anybody else has to say. But Now, in the first three verses, he gives the basic truth that if a woman dies, if, if her husband dies, she's free to marry again, okay? That's the backdrop. So he's using that as an illustration for us. Likewise, verse 4, that background of her being free once her husband dies. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Now, I want you to keep your finger right there and, and back up to chapter 6, verse 2. And I want, to, I want you to notice a very interesting phrase. As he begins in verse 1 with the question, if, if grace is so glorious, and it sounds like you're saying, Paul, that he forgives everything to such a degree that it doesn't matter how we live. And so he addresses that question in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still lived in it? Then he goes on to explain how we've died to sin. But I just want you to notice that phrase. We have died to sin. That's what's happened to us as believers. But chapter 7, verse 4, you've died to the law. He, he puts dying to the law in the same phrase as dying to sin. So there's some kind of attachment between the law and sin. In order for me to die to sin, I have to die to the law because of its association with sin, and yet the law is holy and spiritual and good. But I have to die to it. So here again, it it causes some interesting questions to come up. So chapter 7, verse 4 again. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. We're going to end with this, hopefully. You may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. I want you to notice that the beginning place for your obedience, the beginning place for your morality, the beginning place of ethics, the beginning place of a new life is not the law. You have to die to that relationship and you've got to join yourself in a spiritual marriage to Christ in his death and resurrection. The beginning place is the death and resurrection of Christ. That that gives you a whole different way to think about your life. The beginning place of my obedience to God is not the law. It's being joined to Christ who's been raised from the dead. What does that mean? Does that... Does that influence my life day to day? If that's the beginning place of obedience, does that ever enter my mind? That I'm joined to the Christ who's raised from the dead? Because that's where obedience comes. That's where I'll bear fruit from God. That I've died to the law and I'm joined to Christ. Verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Here's that again. A ministry of death and condemnation. You see it again right here. It, uh, it was working to bear fruit for death, not bearing fruit for God. But now we are released from the law, 
having been held to that which held us captive so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. And there again, you see, is the contrast. The old written code, or as he calls it, the letter or the stones in 2 Corinthians 3. You get that same contrast, don't you, here, between the, the code, the letter, the stone, and the new life of the Spirit. So I'm cut loose. I'm released from captivity I die to a whole way of living under the law, which was constantly arousing my passions and ending me in death. And now I'm joined to Christ, bearing fruit because of the new life of the Spirit that I have in Him. It's pretty radical. Pretty radical. But I I tell you, many, perhaps most, who name the name of Christ are still all about the law, do the right thing, without understanding the whole basic focus, the molten core of my obedience comes by my being joined to Jesus Christ, united to his death and resurrection. So the law exposes sin. If you back up to Romans chapter 3, we read in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Comes knowledge of sin. So the law exposes sin. It shows Sin, what it is. It specifies sin. That's another way we could have put it. He, I I just give that as a backdrop. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Here, back in chapter 7, Paul explains that further. Verse 7, where we were. With that backdrop of, of through the law comes the knowledge of sin, we're looking at how the law exposes sin. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Sounds like it is. I've got to be released from it. Just like I have to be released from sin, well, the law must be sinful. No, by no means, he says. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. See, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. It exposes sin. It brings us to an understanding of sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So that knowledge of of sin, I think that this is reflected in Paul's Uh, self-testimony in Philippians 3 as he was talking about being a zealot for the law. And we know that the zealots believe that if they could cause righteousness to pervade widely enough in Israel and if they could be zealous enough for God in obeying the law, that they could usher in the kingdom, that Messiah would come. Imagine the shock to realize in the light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not only can my righteousness not bring in the kingdom, Messiah had to die for me because of my unrighteousness. What a shocker. What a shocker for Paul. And that's why he said, those things that I thought were gain, okay, these are on the positive side, Imagine if you thought you had $250,000 in the bank and, uh uh-oh, there's a negative in front of that, okay? You're $250,000 in debt. Whatever I thought was gain, he says, now now that was loss. Whatever I thought I was going to accomplish to bring in the kingdom, now that would only drag me and all of us down. 
I must have Christ in him alone. In the light of the death and resurrection of Christ, it became clear his relationship to the law and what the law was truly declaring to him. And so through the law, we are, our sin is exposed. It's made specific. It's interesting in 1 John 3 verse 4, uh, we're told that sin is lawlessness. And the word lawless doesn't mean just disobeying the transcript of the law. The word has to do with rebellion. Sin is rebellion. And so the law comes in and the more tightly it presses us, the more detailed it exposes itself and its beauty and what the ramifications of love are, the more we realize I'm nowhere close. I'm nowhere close. So the law, law exposes sin, but that's not all. Notice in verse 8, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, he doesn't mean I wasn't a sinner before the law came, but dormant, you might say, or, or under the radar screen, let's say. It's like just because you don't see them doesn't mean that there aren't a nest of rattlesnakes in that crawl space, okay? And all it takes is for you to jostle a little bit, and the law jostles what we are. The law comes in and stirs us and says, you need to love, you need to give yourself, you need, here's the ramifications of spending yourself for God and others, and what was maybe we didn't even realize in our hearts begins to come out against it. And you think, I was better person before the law. And that seems to be what he said. At least outwardly, it's like it produced, there's the word, it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies down, uh, dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Oh, there's a great in effect of the law. The law comes, holy, spiritual, good, and I die in the light of it. It's a ministry of death to me because it exposes me and I begin to rise up against it. Self is exposed and self resists and self rebels. You may have seen that a few times with your children. I, I remember so many times with our children, and I did the same thing when I was a child. You say, honey, don't open that. And it's amazing, with all of our children, and I did the same thing, immediately the child looks over at that cabinet. And you know what's going through her mind. You know, I'm going to open that cabinet. Just because you told me not to, I'm going to open that cabinet. And we do that, that's a tiny thing, but think of your whole life reacting to the command of love in that way. Self rising up against itself, beginning to manifest and push itself out, claiming its territory that's being infringed upon by the law, you see. No, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh-uh. I've got this place. You're not coming in here. You're not having this. And so... Sin is exposed, and sin increases even. And notice the way he says in verse 10, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Wow. 
For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then one of the most profound things, and as Ritterboss has said, his statements about the law are some of the most profound, uh, detailed things that Paul says. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Was it the law, the good law? Did the law bring death to me? No, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, the law comes and it so exposes us that even in the face of good and holy law that commands us good things, we get worse. We get worse. He says, that's how sinful my sin is. So that sin might be shown to be sin. You see, he's looking for a way to describe this in the superlative. So that sin can be shown to be just sin, you know. Through and through, top to bottom, inside out, even when what is good. That's how helpless we are to do good. And it can be liberating for you when you realize, I am that I'm that um, imploded is the word. I'm that imploded in self that even when something good and perfect like God's law comes, it just makes me worse. And it shows that I need to be saved. I don't just need to be saved from the consequences of sin. That is guilt and judgment and damnation. I need to be saved from being a sinner. Oh, save me. See, if we were crying out about our sin the same way the blind man cried out about his blindness, then we'd be in the right spot. Oh, Lord Jesus, save me from the way I treat my wife. Oh, Lord Jesus, save me. Or my husband or my children. Oh, Lord Jesus, save me from my anger. Oh, Lord Jesus. See, it's salvation. It's salvation. And that's liberating. That I can complete. And it's not as though God presents all this and says, okay, if you're that bad, then I don't want to have anything to do with you. No, he's setting us up for salvation. It, we don't have time for it, but in Galatians 3, it talks about how the law comes along after the promise because of the transgression. To make the transgression all the more apparent. To make grace all the more needful. In fact, even in the chapter 5, just a few, a page on uh, opposite where we are, it says in verse 20, the law came to increase the trespass. He says that. The law came to increase the trespass. But what's the end result? It's what we just read in Romans 3, and then I'm going to end with Romans 11, we'll be done. Not the whole chapter 11. It's just one. We know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. God wants, you know, it's one thing when you've got all these doors in the game show, you know, like eight doors in front of you, and behind one of those is a car. You know, behind another one is a 
toothpick or whatever. So you've got all these different doors, which one to pick. What God is doing, he's slamming every single door shut, absolutely shut, shutting us up to any hope of anything that we could do of our own righteousness and our own effort. And there's one door he leaves open and it's wide open and it's his son, Jesus Christ. And he says there in Romans 7, you've got to die to that whole law thing. You've got to die to any hope that you are going to obey me. And you need to be joined to Jesus Christ, united to another in marriage. There was a flood in uh, my grandmother's home in Roaring Springs, Texas years ago. Uh, that's out this couple hours this side of Lubbock. There was a flash flood and... I was able to take my dad's hand and walk through the flood, and it came to about right here, scared me to death. But my brother, who's two years younger than me, couldn't do that. And I'll never forget daddy having him just like this, walking through the flood, you know, just walking through the flood. And, and my brother, so scared, just had his head buried in his chest the whole time. So safe, you know, so held. And I think of this, of our letting go of this really tar baby, okay? And we're trying to obey it. We're trying to do the right thing and it's, it's holding on to us and it's dragging us under. It's a tar baby that's sinking under the ocean. That's the law. And I'm cut loose from that and I'm held by Jesus in the flood who knows my sin and he's died for it and he knows my weakness and he's given me his spirit to change me. All you have is Christ. All you have is Christ. How glorious to have Christ. And that's why he says at the end of this whole section on grace, a whole section on salvation, he says in chapter 11, verse 22, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Dear friend, if you're feeling the weight of your disobedience, the only reason God would want you to feel that is so that then you would experience his mercy. He wants you to have his mercy. He's trying to convince you of your need that only Christ will do. Will you not trust in him today, right now? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you release us from this treadmill of sin and death. That you release us from our pathetic, helpless sinfulness in which even the beautiful, glorious law of God given in glory becomes to us a death trap because of our sin. It becomes to us like kryptonite. We have to be cut loose. We have to die to it. We have to be joined to Jesus Christ. We have to be joined to his righteousness. We have to be hidden in his beauty and glory. We have to be sustained by your Holy Spirit that would indwell us. Oh, Lord, you are our hope. But what a sure hope. What a certain hope, Lord Jesus. For you, as you said, Concerning our slavery to sin, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you set us free indeed. And you join us to yourself. And you embrace us forever. 
Bless us, Lord. Bless us. Enable your people to trust you. Enable those here who've never trusted you now to come to you and put their lives completely in the hands of Jesus Christ. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?